When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast on how to be wrong. I'm John Trapagan, your host for today's episode, and I'm delighted to welcome novelist Douglas Richards, New York Times bestselling author of numerous science fiction books, including his latest, Unidentified, which presents some really fascinating ideas about the whole UAP UFO issues that have been prominent in the media recently. And we'll come back and talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. But uh, Doug, it's really great to have you on the show. I'm, I'm really delighted to have you here. Thanks a lot, John. I really appreciate it. Great. All right. So I want to just start uh, by asking if you could talk a bit about your background. And, and you know, you, one of the things we've tried to do on this uh, podcast is get people who have interesting backgrounds. And yours is definitely interesting. So I'm, I'm curious how you got from being a biotech executive to a best-selling science fiction novelist. And, and also what led you to depart the business world for a profession that, you know, if you kind of look at the surface, doesn't necessarily suggest putting food on the table. So how did you get through all of that? <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, I always loved science. Uh, fascinated. I read all of the Asimov books and he did a lot of science as well as science fiction. And, uh, just, you know, it was like mind blowing stuff to me and, uh, you know, read nothing but science fiction, uh, as a child, as a kid, uh, mostly adult science fiction. So I wanted to go into science. And when I was trying to decide, uh, in 1980, when I went to Ohio state, what I wanted to major in, uh, Genentech had just gone public. And so it was kind of like the ushering in the era of genetic engineering. And, uh, you know, it was all the rage and people, you know, it was the capabilities were purported to be pretty amazing. So I thought I could be at the, you know, in the beginning of a groundbreaking revolution. Uh, I love science. I love business. So I thought I could combine the two. And so I, I ended up doing that. I got a, uh, a, uh, a master's in molecular biology. I was in a PhD program, but I left it uh, because as much as I love the science, uh, I, I hated the bench work. Uh, I was kind of a slob. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I was dealing with radiation. <laughs> I was dealing with carcinogens mm-hmm. and uh, I was kind of clumsy and impatient mm-hmm. and sloppy. And uh, it's a wonder that I don't have web feet because Uh, it's, uh, it was bad. And, uh, you know, sitting in an ice bucket doing restriction digestion of DNA for 80 hours a week, uh, wasn't my idea of a good time. I liked reading about the results of the, of the work. I didn't like doing it. You know, you read a journal article about somebody's research that took them seven years and you read it in 20 minutes and you think, wow, that's fascinating, but I don't want to be the one to spend seven years to get to that result. So finally, I left and and uh, and got an MBA from the University of Chicago, 
and uh, and then combined the two and went into biotech. Um, and that was going really well. Um, I was uh, director of biotechnology licensing at Bristol Myers Squibb, um, did multi-million dollar deals with biotech companies, then became a biotech executive. But I always loved to write. So throughout that time, I was writing. Um, years and years and years, I was writing, uh, you know, some some middle grade novels, some adult novels that never got published. Um, and uh, so that was kind of always my dream. And so finally, I was lucky enough that uh, I I was successful enough. We had an IPO and I made enough money that I could actually retire for a few years and pursue my dream of writing. And uh, And I did that. And, uh, you know, the rest is kind of, well, there's a lot more to it, but I think you're going to ask more questions about this later. So I'll, I'll save that for now. But, but uh, you know, so I was really lucky. So yeah, it doesn't really put a lot of food on the table. I was lucky enough that I was able to build a nest egg. Um, so, you know, it's not for the faint heart. And I did spend many years working, you know, two till two in the morning every, every day and then working all day uh, trying to get good at writing. So you didn't just wake up one day and say, I think I'll quit and be a writer. <laughs> no, not, not quite. Yeah. I don't think my yeah. wife would have would have gone for that one either. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, one thing you said I think is really interesting, too, is is um, the, the Ph.D. experience. You know, a lot of people go that route, but it's not for everybody. And, and you know, there are a lot of people get partway through and look at it and go, this is this is not what I want to spend my life doing. Um, and I think that sometimes, and I'm curious, did you, when you left, cause I, I know, um, actually my son went through this, he was doing, uh, geophysics and seismology and decided he didn't want to stare at a computer for his whole life. And, and he switched to a different field in geochemistry do field work. But, you know, did you feel at the time, any sense of, you know, failure, like, wow, I was trying to do this and, and I didn't get through it. Or was it more like, no, nah, I just don't like this. Kind of both. I mean, you know, you dream your whole life. I was going to be a PhD and I was going to be a genetic engineer and I was going to, you know, cure cancer or whatever I was going to do with it. Um, and, and so it's hard because I spent up to that, you know, overall I spent three years in grad school. So seven years total studying molecular biology and I love genetic engineering. I love learning about it. It was really fascinating how it all worked and like, whoa, you know, when I first read about the, you know, the feedback loop, how your genes kind of control themselves and, you know, it's complicated, but, but, uh, but I loved it. And then when I realized I hated the lab work, it was tough because, you know, you gave, but, but I, you know, it's, it's so interesting. I, I think that's more the norm are people changing gears. I mean, people think it's like some storybook life where you have a goal, you have a dream, you pursue it and you do get that dream. But, you know, we, I was, uh, at my daughter's, uh, she was looking at colleges and we were in a big room where they were introducing us. And, you know, there were hundreds of people who were touring that day. And, and the guy says, you know, raise your hand if, you know, for the parents in the room who have degrees, raise your hand. If you ended up, your career ended up using the degree that you got from the university. And it was amazing how few, how few really ended up doing what they thought they were going to do in college. You know, so it's a learning process. Yeah, yeah it is. I actually, um, I, I tell my students this and I am often asked questions about, you know, well, what goals did you set early in, in life? And I've actually never really set goals. And as I've gotten older, I've come to the conclusion that 
you know, sort of short-term goals make sense, but I don't set long-term goals for anything because you just don't know where things are going to go. Yeah. And, you know, you get in the middle of something and you, as you say, it was your dream. You thought it's great. It's like, oh, this sucks. I don't want right. to do this. Right. You know? and, um, and, you know, but if you have a hard goal, you kind of wind up feeling bad because, well, I needed to attain the goal. You know, we live in a society well, yeah. that tells you that. You know, John, I, I tell you, there's, there's this, I saw in a movie once, this, this Zen master parable. And it, you know, it's kind of like, be careful what you wish for kind of thing. And it really has stuck with me throughout my whole life. And I tell it to everybody. So I'll recount it here. And, you, and, you know, a lot of your audience may have already heard it. But, uh, you know, the idea is there's this, uh, you know, village in some country, I don't know, Afghanistan, wherever it is. And uh, the, uh, you know, this boy gets a horse for his 16th birthday. And everybody in the village says, oh, my God, you're so lucky you got a horse. And the Zen master says, we'll see. And then a day later, he's riding the horse. The horse throws him and he breaks his leg. And everybody in the village says, oh, my God, that's so horrible that you broke your leg. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Then a day later, this village, this country goes to war and they come in and they're going to conscript all 16-year-olds, but he's got a broken leg, so he can't go to war. And all the people who are going to war are probably going to die. And the, and the villagers say, oh my God, that's so lucky that you have a broken leg. And he said, and the Zen master says, we'll see. So, I mean, the moral obviously is you really never know. What's, what's really crazy about life is, um, and I've seen this so many occasions where things that I thought I wanted, that I was disappointed I didn't get. Uh, you know, for example, I was disappointed when I left molecular biology, deciding that I didn't really love it. And I'm much happier now. I mean, you know, I think if you have perseverance, the trick is to be able to roll with the punches, be able to persevere and, and be dogged and determined. I think that's the most important quality. Um, and if you, if you have those qualities, then, you know, when the world throws you a curveball or when you don't get something you think you want, you know, you make lemonade out of it and, and proceed to a different course. Yeah, I think a lot of people have that kind of experience. I um, I started uh, my PhD at University of Virginia, and, and my advisor was not someone I could get along with. I, I didn't like him at all. I don't think he liked me either. And so I left and took a few years in the business world. And when I came back and went to Pitt, I actually ran into the same problem again and then wound up finally landing in the right spot. But in some ways, I thank those two people for my career because without them, I really wouldn't have wound up in anthropology doing something I really love doing. Mm -hmm. And so, so even though they were jerks, it was actually really a good thing I ran into them. And you, you never know. You never know what you think you know what's best for you, but there's no way to tell. It's, there's so many random things. Um, and, you know, even, I mean, to be honest with you, I've, done a, I've studied happiness, the science of happiness for many years. Um, and it's really fascinating. You know, it, it involves, you know, close relationships rather than just money. You know, money doesn't really bring happiness. It involves challenging yourself, overcoming adversity, you know, not just lounging by the beach sipping pina coladas, but really working hard uh, on a challenge and, and feeling good about your accomplishments, that sort of thing. But anyway, back, back to happiness. Um, you know, and it turns out that lottery winners are like some of the least happy people in the world. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's fascinating when you study it, you know, people think, gosh, winning the lottery, that's something I would love to do, win that $50 million lottery. And, and, and what happens is when people do, they quit their jobs where they have a, uh, you know, group of friends and relationships and, 
and and bonding, and they leave their neighborhoods, you know, for a richer neighborhood. And so now they're isolating themselves. Then their relatives all come say, hey, why don't you give me some money? So it begins to be really complex. And then they have too much leisure time, which it turns out is the worst thing a human being can have is too much leisure time. I mean, honestly, people don't get that. They strive to have leisure time. They think that's the win. And really, when you're lounging on the beach for six months, for a, for a week, yeah, it's great. But for six months, it's, it's horrible. You, you're accomplishing nothing. You're wasting away. You're melt, melting your brain. And uh, so, so anyway, it's just like I say, you, you know, so, so many things are counterintuitive. You think winning the lottery is the greatest thing. And many people have found it's the worst thing that ever happened to them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very true. Uh, this just kind of brings me to you know question um, that I had. We we touched a little bit on this, but um, you know you have this kind of very background, and I'm I'm guessing you've had you know various experiences of things have gone wrong. And I wonder if you could share uh, you know maybe a particularly interesting example with our audience of something that went wrong that, that really didn't go how you expected and and wasn't what you would hope for. Um, maybe particularly in relation to your, um, you know, career as an author. And, and I'm curious also about, you know, how you might think assumptions and maybe preconceived notions that you had contributed to the way the problem panned out. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously the very first thing we just talked about was, you know, leaving molecular biology, leaving, you know, genetic engineering. That was a, that was a tough setback and, and didn't go the way I'd planned and, and, uh, it went wrong. And, uh, uh, you know, so, so that, you know, and my, and my, as we discussed, my preconceptions were that I would love it and it was completely opposite. Um, but, uh, you know, with respect to writing, um, uh, you know, I, people say, oh my God, you know, you've done so well, you're an overnight success, but I spent so many years behind the scenes, so many years behind the scenes writing, you know, I had some, uh, middle grade books published by a very small time publisher and, and the kids seemed to love them. And then I toiled away into the wee hours of the night. And then I quit my biotech job to devote full-time. And I had agents, which are supposed to be harder to get than publishers back in the day. And uh, they love my work. And uh, I spent years making no money, losing my nest egg, um, killing myself. And those were the days before eBooks. So, you know, the New York publishers were the ultimate gatekeepers. I mean, if you didn't get through them, you didn't get through. And uh, I had people who loved my book. I had one woman at Simon & Schuster who loved it. Uh, but the book world was changing. And unless you have a big name, uh, they don't take a bet on you. And now they, they had to do it by committee. So if one editor loved it, she had to convince everybody else to take a bet. And, uh, oh, we don't know where it fits in. I mean, is it like science? Is it thriller? You know, it's not really science fiction. It's near future. What is this category? Well, it was like, you know, in my view, like Michael Crichton did. You know, I, I don't understand that argument. But anyway, um, so I spun my wheels. I beat my head into a wall for years and years and got nowhere. Um, so it was an epic fail. And, you know, I, I, uh, I started to get back into biotech. Actually, I said, you know what? I, finally, I gave up. I mean, I had beaten my head to a bloody pulp. I had tried everything I could possibly try. Um, and I decided, you know what? This is never going to happen. So I said, time to get back to biotech because now my, my fortune is down to zero. <laughs> I need to make some money again. Um, so I joined a biotech company again. 
and gave up. Okay, so then how did I end up being where I am today? Well, um, just randomly, and, and you know, this is something I write about in my novels, how randomness plays such a huge role in our lives. I was reading this book that I really enjoyed by a guy named Boyd Morrison. And uh, in the back, he was describing how uh, he had self-published it. He had put it online. It had gone viral as an ebook, And then Simon & Schuster had picked it up and published it. And that was in one of those cardboard stands with 100 copies of it. And, and I thought, wow, you know, I didn't even know there was such a thing as ebooks. Um, I was kind of a late adopter, but it was like 2010. So I said, what the hell? I'll give it a shot. So I dusted off the manuscript. It was Wired, was the, was the novel that I was trying to sell all those years. And uh, I figured, you know, what the hell? Maybe 10 people will read it. You know, it's better than zero. I mean, right now, so I dusted off the manuscript. I threw it online. I did no advertising. I did nothing. And two months later, it was selling 60,000 copies a month. And, uh, and it just went viral. And uh, it was on five weeks on the New York Times and USA Today bestseller lists. And, uh, and, and, you know, everybody says, what's your secret? My secret is sitting on my hands and doing nothing and getting lucky. Um, it just went viral. I, you know, who knows why things go viral? Um, but then I quit my biotech job. And ironically, right, because I had spent years killing myself. I finally gave up entirely, finally threw in the towel, and then one last gasp effort. And that then I quit and, and have written full time. And now I'm on my like 18th novel. And I've been doing this now for 12 years. Uh, making a better living than I did as a biotechnology executive. Um, you know, I've got books translated in a bunch of languages. You know, people are interested in doing movies. I mean, all of this stuff is going on. And uh, again, this is after I, I had given up. So I didn't give up entirely, I guess. I, I, you know, give myself credit for giving one last college try. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you actually, when we talked quite a while ago, you said something very interesting I, that about the issue of the, the self-publishing on, you know, Kindle and that you had had an experience where you're, you're talking to someone and about the sort of the concern about that and that you were thinking like along the lines of wanting to see the record in the record store window. You want to see the book in the bookstore window and it took a change of your thinking to get around to the idea that, well, publishing it electronically and self-publishing it, it, what it matters is getting it out there to you know, have people read it. You don't have to have this physical copy. Uh, how did that play a role in, in that? Well, you know, and now you can get physical copies. Like my books are in paperback because there's this print on demand. But, you know, yeah, my sister said that. You know, I was like, you know, for some of my books, like Split Second was in the top uh, 50 of all Amazon books. They, you know, maybe 10 million ebook titles. It was in the top 50 for maybe three, four months. It was in the top 100 for seven months. It ended up being the 27th best-selling novel of the year on Amazon. And, uh, and I was complaining. Yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I want to be in airports, you know, and I want to have my book in airports. And, and my sister was the one who, who said, you know, you're like this, um, uh, you know, this recording artist who has the number one hit on iTunes and you're complaining that it's not in the record store. Well, there are no record stores anymore. And it's very similar. There really aren't. The bookstores are all going out of business. The whole dynamic has changed. Um, you know, it used to be that if you publish yourself, I mean, only hacks publish the, 
themselves. I mean, for, for the most part, it was like Vanity Press, right? You you paid somebody and they published you when nobody else would publish you. But the reality is, the New York the New York gatekeepers, the traditional publishers, they pass by a lot of great stuff, and uh, so it's now become not that there isn't a lot of bad self published stuff. Most of it is bad. I, I have to be honest. But uh, you know, uh, the Martian which is a huge hit, and then a movie. That was self-published. Fifty Shades of Grey was self-published. Uh, Ready Player One was self-published. And now a lot of the traditional publishers um, are become, are going into self-publishing. So I, I actually, after I became a New York Times bestseller, um, I was published by Tor Forge. So, you know, now that I was, you know, they, nobody would look at me before, but now that I was selling 60,000 books a month, then suddenly people took interest and they gave me a six figure advance and uh, published a hardcover and, uh, you know, did a full page ad in uh, Scientific American. They, I mean, they really supported me. I mean, they were great, but uh, they, uh, they put me on coast to coast AM with George Norrie, which is, you know, reaches like three to 5 million people. And, um, you know, I did a bunch of radio and, uh, but, but the problem was it took so long I mean, the system is so antiquated that uh, I thought I would die of old age before the thing hit the bookstore. And meanwhile, they didn't want me to publish anything else to interfere with it. And uh, and then they sold a hardcover. It was in every Barnes & Noble in the country, you know, five or six hardcovers. But they were $25 a piece. And, right, and I was a no-name author for most people. I mean, the ebook people knew me. Um, so, you know, I sold maybe 10,000 copies. Um, but... People are really price sensitive right now. And uh, ironically, what's interesting is for every $25 book I sold with Macmillan Tor, Tor um, I made about $250. For every $699 book, ebook I sold, I made five. So a $699 ebook, I made twice as much as I did on a $25 hardcover. And you can imagine you sell a lot more $699 ebooks than $25 hardcovers. Um, so it was just, you know, so I decided to go back to independent publishing. It was much more lucrative. It was faster. Um, you know, I didn't have to deal with all, you know, anybody else. So it's been great. I mean, it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, I do wish that I was in airports. <laughs> I won't lie to you. I mean, you know, household name, but, you know, it, it, it's been great. Yeah, there, there is definitely something cool to seeing your book in a bookstore. That's just, a, you know, it. Even I think the first time I ever saw one of my, you know, my books are academic books. So, you know, they, they sell like 12 copies, but I was in the Harvard Coop in, in uh, Cambridge and I went in and was looking for something and I saw my book on the shelves. I was like, wow, that's really cool. It does feel good. Um, and but um, one of the things I think is really interesting in this is, you know, we go back to that kind of um, uh, issue of goals and and, you know, those New York publisher gatekeepers you, you know, you can set all the goals you want, but they're there and they can thwart any goal you have as an author um, if they just decide not to pick up your book. But if you go the self-publishing route, you can, you know, go the route you want to go and see what happens. And, and I think that's a that's interesting because, you know, that is a different I mean, I guess there's a kind of a road, roadblock there because you don't have the marketing abilities that you would have with uh, a big publisher. But, you know, those roadblocks pop up. Oh, oh, it's incredible. And, and you know, um, who's to say that their taste is everybody's taste? I mean, in fact, we know that it's not. Um, you know, so so just because 
uh, you know, there, and, and there, and there's endless stories, you know, Harry Potter got rejected by most places that saw it, you know, a wrinkle in time. She spent years and years and years. And then finally she knew somebody who was in the publishing business at a cocktail party who told her, you know, I'm going to publish this, but it's not going to sell any. I like it, but I'm telling you, it's not going to sell any, um, you know, John Grisham, his first novel got nowhere. Um, Dan Brown, I know, I, I know a f- my agent was friends with his agent. The first three novels he wrote sold almost nothing until the Da Vinci Code came along. So, you know, even, uh, you know, authors who are now superstars, uh, were rejected over and over and over again. And in fact, you know, there's, I could, I could go on for hours about stories. You know, somebody took like this award-winning novel and retyped it in and pretended, changed the name submitted it and it got rejected by everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, that's also, I think really an important point for particularly for authors, but really for every, everyone, particularly, you know, people doing any kind of creative thing, rejection is part of the, what you do. It's, it's just, you have to learn to accept it and realize that's what's going to happen. And I, I see, I see this with, you know, graduate students. I, I, I will see it with, you know, like I, I, use Twitter and we'll see lots of, you know, aspiring authors on Twitter. And, and they're, of course, understandably depressed about getting rejection letters, but that's the majority of what's going to happen for most people. And um, and there's that perseverance you were talking about. You have to kind of just keep pushing through and pushing through and, you know, maybe it'll open up at some point. No, it, it's definitely right. You know, just you have to buy a lot of lottery tickets, but it is like winning the lottery. I mean, you know, if you, I, again, I could, I, could, I could regale you with a million stories. Dr. Seuss spent years before he got anything published. I mean, you, you for 90% of the people who are superstars right now, spent years and years and years to become an overnight success and got rejected. They could paper their whole houses with rejection letters. And that's just the way it is. And, and uh, you know, it, it's brutal. I mean, I'm telling you, and just because you can independently publish doesn't make it less brutal. In f- it, it's the worst time to be an author ever right now. I mean, I'm not trying to be depressing, but just realistically, um, even if you have a mo- the most brilliant book ever, trying to be f- discovered. And people think, by the way, if they get published by a traditional publisher, then they- they've made it. Oh my God, Simon & Schuster has bought my book. Well, they buy a thousand books a year and the vast majority of them they give no support to. And and they end up selling a hundred copies. You know, they're like buying lottery tickets, and if if one wins, it makes their whole year. But but what I what I found because I know a lot of authors now. I mean, after over a decade, I know many many authors, and the vast majority who get published by major publishers don't go anywhere. You know, and they, so they think that they finally made it. They haven't, uh, unfortunately. And and uh, you know, and then there are probably I, I'm guessing, but I would say hundreds of thousands to a million new titles by indie authors. I mean, if I knocked on 50 doors in my neighborhood, 30 of them are writing a book because, you know, it, it is really easy to put them online. I mean, Amazon has made that really easy and you can do the print on demand. And some of them are brilliant. Most of them, to be honest, are horrible. And I mean, and, and uh, but, you know, which ones are going to make it? is anybody's guess. And, and, and again, just because you have a brilliant novel doesn't mean it's going to get lucky enough to find an audience. So, so, I mean, I, I, there, I, every day I know how lucky I I've been. I know that I've won the lottery. I mean, I'd like to think that I'm re- reasonably good, you know, that, that, you know, I deserve some 
level of, of support. But the reality is I'm a realist and I know that a lot of it is just, I got lucky, right place, right time, you know, won the lottery. And so I'm grateful every day for that. I mean, it, it, I'll never, I'll never like, you know, become immodest or, or believe that, you know, anything had to do with me. Um, you know, luck is, is involved, but you know, again, you have to, you make your own luck a little bit too. You know, you persevere. I, yeah. Yeah. You, you push through it. And, um, that brings me to a, I guess, uh, another sort of question I wanted to talk about is, is your writing. And, um, I will say I've read several of your novels at this point and, uh, I really enjoy your writing. Um, the, the most recent one unidentified, I read it in one sitting, I couldn't put it down. Um, and one of the things that really intrigues me is your attention to detail. You, you clearly put a lot of effort into trying to accurately, accurately describe sort of near future technologies based on the kinds of things we see emerging now. Um, and of course, you know, some authors in science fiction do that and some don't worry too much about that. But I'm interested in, in how you came to build your writing around trying to really accurately represent where you think our technology might be going um, and, and weave that into these very interesting stories. And, and also maybe the extent to which your, your background in science might have contributed to that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of facets to this answer. You know, I know I tend to get long winded, so interrupt me anytime if I keep going. But, um, you know, I've always loved science and I always thought that... Um, you know, real science is even more, you know, Harry Potter is really cool, right? But, but, and I say this, I used to give assemblies with my kids' books. I go to, you know, 400, you know, kids at a major assembly and I talk about writing and, and my kids' books. Um, But, but, but in my view, you know, real science is even more mind-blowing than fantasy. I mean, you know, look, when I learned that the speed of light is 180, 186,000 miles a second, that light can go around the world seven times in a second. And yet on a cosmic scale, that's incredibly slow, incredibly slow, because there, you know, other galaxies are billions of light years away. Um, So, you know, that blew my mind. But then when I found out that if you went the speed of light, time would come to a standstill, you know, your mass would increase to infinite, your length would increase to decrease to zero, and time would slow down. Are you kidding me? And that's real. They've, you know, they they have evidence from decaying particles where, you know, when they're going slow, they decay at a certain rate. When you speed them up to the speed of light, they decay. It takes much longer, and it matches exactly what Einstein said it was going to do. Okay, you know that kind of thing. Quantum physics, all of that stuff, just blows my mind. And so, I was always in love with that stuff. And when I read it, you know, like Asimov and other people who did accurate science, I thought you know, it makes it that much cooler because it's real. So then when I decided to, to, to do writing, you know, I looked at John Grisham. You know, he was a guy who was a lawyer and he went and wrote, wrote books about, about the law. And when you read the books, you said, wow, this, is must, what, what, this must be what really is going on. You know, this is what a real courtroom is like. This guy knows because he's been in the business. And I thought, well, I could bring that to a biotech thriller you know, so Wired had some biotech elements and, uh, you know, I was deeply immersed in the biotech world and knew it like the back of my hand. So I thought I could bring some legitimacy to it, some veracity. Um, and, and so I wrote that, but, uh, then I just, you know, it's been a fascinating journey because 
it, it, you know, that's the most, f I have the most fun writing the science bits than of any of the rest of the novel. I love the, the thought pieces, you know, the, the big pondering of cosmic ideas, you know, uh, looking at today's science and extrapolating what it might become. Um, you know, one of my favorite story, which I've, which I repeat all the time, you know, at, at first I thought, well, am I going too far with some of these far out concepts like nanobots? I don't know if I had nanobots in, in this last one, but, but I've had them in a number of novels. And, you know, the idea is you have these, um, you know, microscopic robots that you can program and, and just like 3d printers, these can build stuff atom by atom. And they can convert one material into another. So imagine you drop it into the soil, it collects what it needs from the soil and builds another one of itself. And then they build two more. And then you have exponential growth. Pretty soon you have trillions of these little nanobots, okay? And then, boom, you program and they make a big screen television. You know, so out of a sandbox, this television materializes. The, you know, these little nanobots are building it, okay? Um, and, and I thought to myself, wow, that seems impossible. You know, could we ever really have the technology to do that? And then it occurred to me, my favorite class in, in graduate school is developmental biology, how a fertilized egg becomes a human being. And I thought to myself, and I've used this repeatedly because it's so fascinating to me, this is exactly what life does, except life does that one better. So, you know, you have a single sperm meets a single egg, and they divide, they gather materials, make more of themselves. Pretty soon... You have trillions of cells, and not only that, but they, they're programmed so they know some know to become heart cells, some to become eye cells. Then you end up with 100 billion brain cells, 100 billion neurons that somehow magically are organized in such a way as to get consciousness. You know, so from, from insensate matter, you know, one sperm and one egg, and nine months later, you have a conscious human being. So, so I thought, well, you know, I thought it was far-fetched throwing a nanobot into a sandbox and getting a TV. What about throwing a sperm into an egg and ending up with a fully conscious human being? You know, that's even far more, far more impressive of a feat. Um, so, it's, so it's that kind of thing that I find the most interesting. You know, sometimes I go, you know, you, you know, I probably should shorten it a little, little bit sometimes, maybe no, a little no, more no, action, on, but, but, but my fans seem to really love that stuff. And then at the end mm -hmm. of the, each novel, I, I, I have a section of what's real and what's not. And I yeah, discuss the yes. science even further. Yeah. 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 I actually, I really enjoy when you kind of pull that out because it, it gets interesting to get absorbed in that. And, and I think part of what's interesting is that in reading it, it's obvious that you've, you've, You've done your investigations to make sure you understand what you're talking about. So it all makes sense. You don't, in, when, when you write these kinds of things, one of the things I, I found really enjoyable is I rarely ever hit a, that doesn't make sense. I don't believe this. It, all the pieces come together in such a way that I think, oh, yeah, I could kind of see how it could go there. And this is all making sense. And so it's a lot of fun to read that stuff. Thank you. I, I really appreciate yeah. that. I, I mean, I do really put a lot of work in. I mean, I'm, it's a little exhausting sometimes. I won't lie to you. Um, I put so much effort into each one and it's getting harder. The more I write, you know, the more, um, you know, it's harder, harder to come up with new ideas and, and stuff like that. So, um, but, but so far, you know, I feel proud that every book I've written, I haven't phoned it in, you know, that, 
that they all get, you know, about the same level of ratings on Amazon that, you know, they're, you know, people seem to, my fan base seems to like all of them, you know, every time I'm worried that they're not, you know, I mean, even the one I'm writing now, I think, oh my God, this is finally the one that people are going to hate. Um, because you always, you know, that little voice in your head. Um, but uh, so far I- I- I've been fortunate, but, but a lot of that is just, I pull out my hair I mean, it really is kind of a nightmare process. A lot of the writing people, people think it's like so great, but for me, I rely so much on the plot on, you know, really mind blowing stuff and, and twists and, and, you know, reveals and turns and, and, uh, to come up with those things sometimes, I mean, I, I stop for weeks at a time trying to figure out where the, you know, how to pull it off. So Writing is hard work. It's really hard work. And it's, it's, you know, whether it's, it's academic writing or fiction, you know, to create something, even something short, but, you know, to create something the length of the book that is coherent and makes sense and, and also captures people's attention. It's just a lot of hard work. I think a lot of people don't realize a lot of those folks that, that go out and, and, you know, are writing, uh, you know, the, the next Kindle novel or whatever that aren't so good. I, I, I think sometimes they aren't really grasping just how much has to go into making this work and, and how much effort has to go into it. And that really comes through in your writing. It's very, very obvious. Th- thank you. No, I think, I think plot is everything. Story is everything. And uh, I think that a lot of people, you know, it's easy just to put sentences down on a piece of paper and just kind of go wherever, you know, but, but I think, to make it fit together like a Rubik's cube, or you know, to make sure every turn has a purpose um, and connect it all, that can be super tricky. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. So you do something really interesting in your book. And the first time I, I the first book of yours I read, uh, and I actually, uh, so I, I, I ran across your work on uh, Kindle. I was just looking. For, I I just searched for hard science fiction and. Uh, I can't remember which one of your books it was, but uh, uh, I thought, oh, this looks kind of interesting. And um, it was, uh, it was, uh, one of the things that really interested me was that I got to the end and, you know, you had that section that talks about uh, the, the technologies and things. And then you put your email address in there. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I have not run into an author who is so, accessible to his audience. And so I, I was just kind of curious about that. If you could tell me a little bit about um, how that, you know, how that came to mind. And can we pause for one second? Um, I am getting a call from my daughter from the airport. Sure. So let's just pause for, okay. Yeah. So that came about, I mean, basically, um, as I mentioned earlier, I've always just felt like I've won the lottery. I'm so grateful that anybody's read my novel because for a long time I thought, you know, maybe my relatives and, and now, you know, millions of people have read my, my work, which is really kind of cool. And so, um, again, I, so, so I, I, I love to hear feedback. I love to hear what people have to say. Um, you know, I'm on Facebook at Douglas E. Richards author. Um, and, uh, I always respond, um, you know, as people post on Facebook, I always respond. So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of my fans really like that I'm responsive, uh, but I'm grateful to them. And, and writing is lonely work. I mean, let's face it. I mean, I'm sitting here 10 hours a day in a, in a little cube uh, in my own head. And so the interaction is actually kind of fun and, most, and almost all positive. I and mean, people are really nice. 
Um, they write me. Um, so I, I really enjoy it. Uh, so yeah, I publish on my Amazon page, you know, feel free to write the author on every book. Um, you know, I, I'm always, I always respond. Um, and I think people seem to, to enjoy that. So it's working out. Yeah. I think it's, it's really great because it's an opportunity to, um, you know, actually connect with the person who wrote the book. So, so in the afterword of, um, unidentified, I, I thought, uh, one of the things that was really interesting because, you know, the book deals with this, this current issue as we talked about early on of UFOs or UAPs and, um, you write about how you were a skeptic concerning UFOs, and I'm certainly a skeptic. I've spent a lot of time studying, you know, SETI-related stuff, and the thing that always kind of hits me is, well, the distances are just absurdly vast, and then I ask myself, well, why would they, why would they come here? Um, and so I'm pretty skeptical about the idea of, of um, you know, aliens of any sort. But you note that your position changed a bit recently. And I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, uh, how, why that happened and also maybe how writing Unidentified might have contributed to that. Well, actually it happened, and that was the reason I wrote Unidentified. Um, it, it, it is, my position didn't just change a little. It changed dramatically. I was the world's biggest skeptic. I thought there was just no way. For the same reasons you did. Yeah, intergalactic distances are pretty darn far. You know, I mean, I think I wrote in the book, you know, Alpha Centauri is, you know, whatever, the nearest star is four light years away. It would take a 747, I don't know, like five million years, a 747 to reach it. So, you know, the idea, and then, you know, I thought, well, what's the deal? If you have the technology to travel interstellar distances, you have the technology to keep hidden. So why show yourselves? They have to have the technology to uh to be stealthy so either show yourself and you know show up on the white house lawn and hold a press conference hey we're the aliens here we are or remain hidden what's this middle ground stuff and so i just thought it was you know mass delusions i mean you know we believe in vampires and we believe in uh werewolves and you know witches and you know humanity is really good with mass delusions and uh so i thought you know this is all kind of weird stuff that, you know, and since nobody really brought proof, you know, after all this time, so I, I dismissed it. But then a funny thing happened. Um, you know, they started like 60 Minutes did a story. You know, the government started coming clean. Um, you know, all these things started happening where they had these pilots, you know, the U.S. Nimitz was doing a... Uh, a training exercise off the coast of San Diego, 2004, and they saw a hundred of them in near Earth orbit, and they would drop to at speeds of like you know, I can't like fifty thousand miles an hour, you know, kind of speeds, and turn on a dime. They didn't have any wings. They didn't have any visible means of propulsion. No heat signature. They would go, you know, from space into the air and then underwater, traveling at ridiculous speeds underwater. Um, they were seen by everybody by multiple radars. And the military's finally coming clean. And they even have like, you know, images of this stuff. And then it would dart off and appear, you know, 60 miles away, like a second later. And, uh, you know, um, and then the government, again, is, is becoming more and more clean about it. And so the more I did research into this, the more fascinated I became because I said, wait a minute. And in 2014 and 15, the Navy was seeing them every single day. 
every single day that defied the laws of physics. I mean, defied the laws of physics. I mean, the, the somebody calculated in a journal article the energy required to do those maneuvers that they that they witnessed on the Nimitz. It would be like the equivalent of two hundred thousand tons of TNT going off in a fraction of a second. So clearly, it's defying the laws of physics. So so then, as this became more public, and Congress started fessing up a little bit, um, there was these Freedom of Information requests, and and they got out that. Um, and so as I was researching another novel, um, the Defense Intelligence Agency released three papers three working papers that they had written under the Freedom of Information Act. And I'll, get, I'll read the titles. I've got them written down in front of me. Um, Warp Drive, Dark Energy, and the Manipulation of Extra Dimensions. Okay? Warp Drive, Dark Energy, and the Manipulation of Extra Dimensions. Tra- the second was Traversable Wormholes, Stargates, and Negative Energy. And the third was Advanced Space Propulsion Based on Vacuum Space-Time Metric Engineering. Okay, these are papers from the Defense Intelligence Agency of the United States. They're not from some comic book writer or a science fiction guy. Warp drive, dark energy. I, I mean, it's just insane. Okay, so I, re- I read these papers and I used them in a novel, you know, some of the ideas. Um, but then I read about the UFO patents, which I also include in, in the novel Unidentified. And... Um, these are patents that are filed by the U.S. Navy in 2018. And um, they basically patents on the technology that Nimitz saw. I mean, it's identical. You know, a craft that can go underwater, near Earth orbit, travel at ridiculous speeds, no heat signature. You know, and here's the, uh, the first. It's, let me read it. It's called Craft Using an Inertial Mass Reduction Device. Okay. Um, and... Uh, they, the, the Navy's chief patent officer, uh, Mark Mark Glutt, uh, he filed this, okay? The patent office said, we're not going to allow this. It's perpetual motion. It's ridiculous. And he convinced the patent office that they could reduce it to practice, that they could actually they, – they, I don't know if they – not that they have reduced it to practice, but they could. They could make this invention. And they actually allowed the patent. It's an issued patent, Okay. You can you can Google it, and I in fact I have links in the back of the novel. In fact, in the first thirty pages of Unidentified, I go through all the evidence, detail by detail. And if you look at the patent number on a Kindle or you know however else you're reading it, you can click on it. It'll go to the patent. Okay. Um, and by the way, if anybody out there is interested, you don't have to buy the thing. I mean, I'm not trying to sell the book here. If you want to just read that first thirty pages on Amazon, you go to the Amazon page. It'll say look inside. And you can read like the first 30 pages for free. So anyway, um, so, so, so here, let me, let me read a sentence from this patent. This is an actual published patent from the U.S. Patent Office. Here's an actual sentence. This invention would also enable us to engineer the fabric of our reality at the most fundamental level. The fabric of our reality. Did I write that as a science fiction writer? So I'm thinking to myself, holy hell. Am I reading this in an issued patent? And again, I urge anybody listening, Google it. It's called Craft Using an Inertial Mass Reduction Device. You can find the sentence yourself. Then the second one is for kind of like a, like a Star Trek uh, shield, you know, an electromagnetic shield. That, uh, and one of the quotes from that is, 
It's a feature of the present invention to provide a method and apparatus for generating an impenetrable defensive shield. Impenetrable, okay? Um, so my mind was officially blown when I read those. These are issued patents. And I'm thinking to myself, there's more going on than we're aware of. I don't know what. And, and that's the reason I wrote Unidentified, really, was to say, okay, can I think of a reason that, you know, they kind of show themselves a little bit, you know, but not show themselves entirely? What are they doing here? What is their goal? And so I wrote a fictional account that incorporates all the evidence, the real evidence, but then in a fictional story of, you know, kind of a story about what's going on. Yeah, you presented kind of a, a plausible way to think about it. You put the pieces together in a way that's that, you know, you kind of go, oh, OK, you know, if you if you accept this, then these pieces kind of make sense. And I think it's interesting, too, as you note, those patents aren't, you know, coming from some nutcase, it's the Navy that's patenting, patenting these things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I was just astonished that, I mean, I never thought I'd see the day where, you know, a patent would issue talking about engineering the fabric of reality. Like what, what, what in the world? So, so yeah, I was super skeptical now. And you know what else though, though, John, um, you know, I've decided who the hell knows I mean, you know, like I, I talked about nanobots and the, the miracle of birth. I mean, all, all I know is, you know, the more I've studied cosmology, and I, and I wrote about this in a seminar we did together about, you know, kind of uh, cosmology and, and uh, uh, religion, not really religion, but, but belief in a creator. Or, or, and, um, and I was always agnostic, very agnostic. And, uh, I, um, I, you know, I, I was very skeptical. I was probably even atheist really, you know, thinking, you know, the belief in a God is absurd, but then the more I study cosmology and the more I realized that there's stuff going on out there, you know, the way I put it in one of my novels is to understand the bigness of it all. Um, our sun is a massive fireball so big that a million earths could fit inside a million Earths, and it's a fireball that's going to burn for billions of years. I mean, okay, try wrapping your mind around that. Okay, no, you can't. There's no way you can wrap your mind around our sun. Now, our sun is one of 100 or 200 billion suns in our galaxy. And now we know, recently, that there are two trillion galaxies, each with hundreds of, of billions of stars. And now scientists say, oh, yeah, well, there's infinite number of, of universes. So I'm thinking to myself, I can't wrap my head around the size of the sun. There are, you know, 200 billion trillion suns, you know, so who am I to say what's possible? I mean, you know, we're just scratching the surface, you know, and, and then I go back in my novels and I talk about, you know, what if you took a cell phone to somebody 300 years ago? I mean, you know, here's something, well, you know, I mean, and, and in today's society where you could, you know, you could look at the weather, you can watch a video, you can take a picture, you can, I mean, infinite uses of a cell phone in your hand. I mean, he would think that, he would think that, would, that could never, ever, you know, be possible. And so I, I've really just decided that um, anything's possible, you know, and, and, and by that same token, then if anything's possible, then why not a creator? I mean, a creator is just as likely an explanation 
for the impossibility of the cosmos as anything else. Yeah, that's why I've always remained agnostic on it because, you know, I, I can't come to a good reason to say it's impossible because there's just the vastness of where we live and the, the tiny little speck on which we live and, and really what has to be a really tiny amount of knowledge about our universe that we have. It just leaves too much open of unknown to, to make conclusions about it, in my view. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, I, I wish that I was smarter and I knew more. I mean, I'm dying to know what's really going on. And it, it, it's maddening that, I, that I'll never know. And that I, I don't have the brain capacity to know anyway. I mean, you know, we can't understand the, the infinite. Um, so, you know, it makes you a little bit humble. And, it may, and so, you know, like I say, before I thought there's no way there's a God, there's no way there are UFOs. Now, on the God front, I'm much more open-minded, uh, not, not organized religion, but as a creator. And, and, uh, and, and for organized religion, I just, I feel like there's so many of them and, and a lot of them have conflicting doctrines and, you know, it's kind of hard to sort through all that. But, but, um, and the same on the UFO front, this evidence is just, you know, just so strong right now. Um, you know, so, so it's hard to look away from entirely. Yeah, it really is. And um, I think, you know, that's uh, the, the word you use is humbling. It's been, you know, the one of the topics that we've really tried to explore throughout this podcast is, is the, you know, the way in which that, um, you know, I think often in, in science, we tend to get, uh, in a sense, kind of amazed with what we've accomplished, which I think is reasonable. You know, the cell phone is a remarkable invention. Um, at the same time, it's humbling when you think about it in the context of the vastness of the place that we live. And, and I think it's really important to be in that position where we keep humbling ourselves. And so, so this is, this has been a fabulous conversation Doug. I really enjoyed this. Is there anything that you'd like to add that we really haven't covered up to this point? Not really. I mean, I think, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's been fun. I knew it would be, uh, from having talked to you before and, uh, uh, you know, I appreciate the, the chance to get on. Uh, but no, it, it's, uh, it's been quite the journey for me. Um, you know, I've tried to, you know, a number of different things. And, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it's most, the thing I've enjoyed most about it is, is really kind of getting paid. My job is to learn about a variety of different, you know, big picture sciences, biology. And part of that, I also, you know, talk about ethics and human behavior and, and the subconscious. I mean, I really delve into, and after, you know, 18 novels, um, you know, it's been good because I've really picked up a lot of different d- disciplines. Um, and uh, there's a lot of fascinating stuff in our world. Um, you know, and I would recommend just turning off the news, um, pretending the news doesn't exist because, you know, they're doom and gloom all the time. You know, uh, bad stuff sells. Uh, good stuff doesn't. So the news tends to always be negative. Um, and so I think it's really important in today's world that you really have to ignore that stuff. Um, and just, you know, live and be happy and, and, uh, you know, try to explore as much of the, of the world and, and thought as you can. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a, that's a great observation. And I think that's a, that is a great way to bring together what we've talked about. So, uh, this has been a great conversation, Doug. I want to thank you very much for joining us on how to be wrong and, uh, really, really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, thanks a lot, John.